0: Hello, and welcome back to the Offspring Magazine, the podcast, season three. It's Bea, and I will be hosting today's podcast, the first episode of season three. Today, we will be talking to Professor Jens Brüning, who is the director of the Max Planck Institute for Metabolism Research in Cologne, as well as head of the Clinic for Endocrinology, Diabetes, and Preventative Medicine at the University Hospital in Cologne. In today's podcast, we will be specifically talking about diabetes, obesity, and metabolic dysfunction. I hope you will enjoy this podcast. Um, thank you so much for joining us sure. today on this podcast. I'm really excited to talk to you. Thank
1: you so, much. Um,
0: so, why don't you just start by introducing yourself and telling us what you do?
1: Okay. I'm Jens Brunning. I'm director at the Max Planck Institute for Metabolism Research here in Cologne. Uh, at the same time, I'm heading the clinic uh, for endocrinology, diabetes, and preventive medicine at the University Hospital. And so, doing both clinical practice in endocrinology as well as, you know, Directing the research program will be.
0: Okay, so the, the works are really closely yeah. related.
1: Yeah. And so the, the, the concept behind it is maybe originates from my history. So I'm a trained endocrinologist. So I went to medical school and then I started clinical training and uh, with a focus on diabetes. And I was really you know trying to understand what is you know, really the basis of the disease. And this is why I went to the States. I did a postdoc at Jocelyn Diabetes Center. And started working on insulin action and insulin resistance, and then I, you know, after a couple of years, I came back to Cologne, finished my residency, and then got more and more interested in basic science, and basically moved out of medicine and took on a professorship in the biology here at the University of Cologne, and then after some years, I was recruited to Max Planck, and at the same time, um. I, possibility came up that I could also go back to clinic. And so I'm really now combining both sides, which I really like. And so conceptually, the idea is that we run very basic studies at the MPI, but we also have a translational angle. So we have groups who are working on MRI imaging. So we'll be talking about our science later, right? But uh, yeah. uh, who so that we do a lot of work in mouse models trying to understand the neurobiology of uh, metabolism regulation. And uh, so then we have groups who are trying to you know translate that to the human situation using, for example, fMRI imaging. And then it's of course great to really have the link to the clinic to also eventually bring in the patients suffering from the relevant diseases to also include them in the studies. And I think that's really the unique about this place that we can really go all the way from let's say a molecule in a neuron to a neurocircuitry in a mouse you know generate models that we eventually can test in the human situation
0: yeah yeah it's actually a perfect setup here i saw that it's really close and it's really on campus so
1: it's really the university hospital is you know 100 meters away so it's really i walk you know in between Probably five ten times a day, so it's really okay. really convenient to be on the same campus.
0: Yeah, and you go there to mainly like advise or treat well, patients. Well, it's
1: it's basically so I I do one day outpatient service myself, so we really see patients that day, and uh, and the rest is really interacting with the colleagues and also trying to bring them together with the with the colleagues in the institute, and to nurture collaboration. And so this has been really really very fruitful. And so we have residents who are in clinical training, who then maybe spend a time for like two or three years in a a more basic science, Mm -hmm. either in the lab or in the human translational group. And then they go back to the clinic, but they, you know, carry on and remain as a link between both entities, basically.
0: Cool. Yeah, so we're at the Max Planck Institute of Metabolism Research, translated in mm-hmm. English. So why don't we start by talking about metabolism? Because a lot of people always use the term metabolism. And mm. a lot of people also claim like, oh, I have a fast metabolism or, oh, I have a slow metabolism. So let's just start by defining what is a metabolism.
1: Well, metabolism in, in, in any principle is just, you know, converting um, you know, things in the, in the body in, in the broadest sense. Uh, and, of course, the specific metabolism that we are most interested in is, is actually glucose metabolism. And this is really where I come from and this is how um, our understanding is. What usually happens to glucose, so we consume carbohydrates, they get absorbed in the, in the body and eventually they have to be, you know, deposited in a cell which needs the energy to be generated from it, with it being, for example, classically a muscle cell or a fat cell which is responsible for the uptake of uh, of glucose and to further metabolize it. And so if you think about how to maintain a stable glucose concentration in blood, the only hormone that is really in action to do that is insulin, and this is released from the pancreas. And then insulin acts on you know, muscle and fat cells to promote mm-hmm. glucose uptake. And at the same time, it acts on the liver to suppress the new generation of glucose. So it does everything to lower blood glucose concentrations and that balance is very tightly regulated and that of course doesn't work if you develop diabetes and that's a disease we're interested in and it affects currently about 10% of the population and we know it's tightly coupled to uh, increased body weight to obesity. So the more obese you get, the more likely you become insulin resistant, so the hormone doesn't work mm. anymore, and this is kind of the, the field we're operating in. Asking, why do you get obese? Why does you know body weight regulation yeah. fail? And why subsequently then, glucose metabolism gets out of control.
0: So also just talking about glucose metabolism, is there something as, I have a fast glucose metabolism and I have a slow glucose metabolism? Well, not
1: that we're aware of it. I mean, so basically, there's no such thing as an intrinsically slow yeah. or fast way. The, the the question is how your body manages basically to fuel, you know, glucose into the pathway to be metabolized. In other words, um, you know, how quickly does it get into a muscle cell and how is it then subsequently metabolized? But there's no like, intrinsic, mm. you know, uh, difference in that.
0: And so, what actually controls then the glucose metabolism?
1: Well, fundamentally, it's insulin. insulin. And uh, in, on, you know, on the flip side of the coin, of course, you have a system in place that if you don't get fuel sources from outside of your body, let's say under starvation conditions, where no glucose comes in with the with food, then your body can convert you know fatty acids and amino acids into glucose in the liver, which then maintain stable blood glucose concentrations, although at a lower level, because glucose is critical for your brain to function and to survive, and this is why you basically have this fine-tuned balance. And you know, on the other side, there are hormones like glucagon or corticosterone, which are active to maintain gluconeogenesis, the new production of glucose from the liver under conditions mm-hmm. of starvation. So it's always, um, you know, it's it's very, and this is what I think is so fascinating that you have sensors, which kind of sends any deviation to any direction either going up or down and that they then try to, to counterbalance that dysregulation and to really maintain what people consider homeostasis, you know, yeah. a stable regulation of a variable.
0: And so when we're all born um, as newborns, I'm assuming that everyone has perfect regulation of insulin as well in the body. In
1: principle, yeah. I mean, unless uh, super rare events, where let's say if you're born with a... Your genetic mutation of an insulin and yeah but, but there's not like so many rare. cases no, 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 no. of this that is right super rare. I mean in principle yeah. let's assume you're fine yep. yeah um, And luckily, so then
0: when you when you lose this insulin regulation, mm-hmm. why is that the case? So I'm assuming <laughs> it's lifestyle factors it's if it's a, not genetic
1: It's logical it, it, first of all it is genetic so it is we know that relatives of um, patients with diabetes, have a higher risk to develop diabetes. So there's a genetic predisposition, which is polygenic in nature. So it's not like, you know, monogenic disease. I mean, they are rare, as I said, super yeah. rare uh, cases, but let's say for the garden variety of subjects affected, it is really, uh, you know, different alleles coming together, each of them having only minor effects. But then if you accumulate a critical, let's say number of variants in different let's say, components of insulin signaling, for example, that then you, know, you, you reach a certain threshold of impairment of insulin signaling, and then mm-hmm. it, it turns against you. But unfortunately, it's, it's really not even clear. I mean, although the, the genetic evidence is clear, and we start seeing, you know, identifying more and more Contributing variants, it, it's just very difficult because you know it's a combination of so many alleles which has to come together. Then yeah, um, and so that is one side, and then the other side, as you mentioned, is clearly our lifestyle, right? And so the, the what we know is, the more obese you get, the more you know fat you accumulate, that massively drives the risk of diabetes and insulin resistance, and there's a lot of. Um, Research has been going on, of course, trying to understand what is the link between being overweight and becoming insulin resistant in diabetes or pre-diabetes before yeah. it really flips over. And um, one, I think, very attractive hypothesis is is a concept which is called lipotoxicity. And so the, the what what's behind that is that the, the best way to store fat, is in highly specialized fat cells. So, fat cells in our body, they're they're perfectly primed to safely store lipid. It's basically, they have a huge lipid droplet, and then on demand, so basically, you take up calories, it gets stored away in fat, and this is pretty much inert, it's not hurting, it's just sitting there and waiting to be used under conditions of starvation, for example, then, you know, the fat is released, travels to the liver, and so on. The problem probably begins if you exceed the storage capacity of that highly specialized cell. So that's a friend of mine always terms it like that a fat cell in obesity is your friend and not your enemy. if, If you would have an unlimited expandability of your fat tissue very likely you wouldn't even get sick because you kind of put away your fat in a safe place, and nothing really happens at worst to your body. But for reasons which we haven't fully understood, you know, the expandability of fat cells in their lipid storage becomes limited, and then you get kind of spillover of lipids into tissues such as liver and muscle, and this is what we then call ectopic lipid deposition. So let's say an unphysiological flow over of lipid into tissues, which do not have that specialized storing Mm -hmm. capacity, and then in those tissues, the lipids can exert, you know, can inhibit insulin signaling, and then that links to the development of insulin resistance and ultimately diabetes. And so that's kind of at at least an important contribution, Um, and of course we're trying to understand exactly which specific lipid species, out of the thousands of lipids, is really the driver of... Insulin resistance, and this is also where we have a research program, and we're pretty active and, and really excited about.
0: I really like that hypothesis. Actually, I've never. It's it's I've never heard of it, so uh, it was really it's interesting. Pretty, it makes sense as well.
1: It actually, gen, you know, it it uh, started being recognized from a rare disease. There, um, uh, there's a, a monogenic disease which is called lipodystrophy, and those are patients. Um, who cannot form fat cells right? Okay. because of developmental defects. Yeah. So they lack certain factors which allow them to make fat cells. And under that condition, you can easily imagine you consume fat, you cannot put it into adipose tissue because you don't have fat cells. And then you know the fat immediately goes to liver. Mm-hmm. And those patients, basically, they, they have no fat. They have massive enlargement of the liver which is basically full of fat they're massively insulin resistant and so they are kind of the extreme model which led to recognize you know that this partitioning of of fat in, in across different organs is is really critical to maintenance of normal and then they you know, develop massive insulin resistance completely uncontrolled uh, mm. diabetes
0: but then based on this hypothesis it makes it seem like diabetes this 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 hypothesis would only fit really if you are diabetic because of your lifestyle, so maybe.
1: But it's a combination eight. of both, right? I mean, so yeah. let's say if you, if you assume it's a, it's a, you know, polygenic disease, you start out with a certain risk to get it, and then you're you're basically on a, on a curve, that that maybe your genes make you resist, mm. even ectopic fat deposition. Um, that you're not very vulnerable to develop that insulin resistance but but there may be others who at the, you know at the very low end already are predisposed to you know to to flip over and then of course the second component of that is I mean one is insulin action yeah but the other one is that insulin has to be produced and released from the pancreas from the pancreatic beta cells so uh, and so these are cells which produce insulin. And they have glucose sensors, so they kind of measure on a minute-to-minute basis how much glucose is there. And the moment the glucose rises, the insulin is released from those cells. And, of course, at some point, or until a certain point, if you can have insulin resistance, but the beta cell kind of can compensate by, you know, making more and more, putting out more and more into circulation to kind of overcome that resistance but then eventually if the beta cell had to work against mm. that mountain of resistance eventually it collapses fails and then you you get a reduction in insulin secretion and then the whole thing uh, totally turns against you and then your glucose control gets yeah. out of control
0: yeah so i mean it's been already a lot of information so if we just break down also for the audience yeah. that isn't maybe um doesn't know so much what exactly is diabetes or, if anything, also metabolic dysfunction. I guess we're only well, talking about diabetes here, but maybe we can also talk on a general term.
1: But it, I think in, in, in a general term, is if, uh, it is ultimately if a homeostatically regulated variable gets out of control. Yeah. So if, you, if the body does not manage to maintain a certain variable, in that case glucose, within the pretty well-defined physiological range, And of course all components that contribute to the physiological regulation, it being insulin you know, signaling in the periphery, insulin release, so all the you know parameters which feed into that regulation um, can be you know subject to alteration and and basically flip you into dysregulated metabolism in the broadest sense.
0: Yeah. And so Yeah. So I guess you said, I mean, it can be genetic, it can be lifestyle, but we're really in an epidemic or in our pandemic of obesity. Um, Yeah. So, and um, I was also interested in kind of what controls this energy in energy out Mm -hmm. process, you know, because I guess that's also related to metabolic dysfunction. So what kind of are the main players that Determine how much energy we yeah. keep in and how much energy we
1: expend. so that is uh, again as it, it's exactly the same principle. And I think this is what fascinates me about endocrinology, or uh, is is really the you know, the feedback regulatory mechanisms which are put in place to maintain homeostasis. So you can I've described you or we've discussed the your insulin feedback system yeah. to to control glucose concentration, and there is a similar uh, system in place which you can view as a central regulator of let's say fat homeostasis and that uh, hormonal system was only identified in the early 90s and that has completely opened uh, our your way into understanding how body weight is regulated so this was really a black box i mean compared to other regulatory systems such as insulin you know, which has been around for 100 mm-hmm. plus years um the 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 question uh was really i mean how is body weight regulated and so there was a nice hypothesis put forth in the 50s by kennedy and he said well he proposed a homeostatic regulatory system for body weight and uh, he basically proposed that there should be a sensor in the broader sense which detects how much energy is in the body so what that would predict is that there is a signal which is released in proportion to how much energy you have in your body. And he said, well, the the brain is ultimately what decides, am I going to eat or not? So he predicted that there would be soluble factors coming from the periphery, you know, kind of as measures of energy state in the broader sense. And he predicted that then there should be a receptor for that signal in the brain which then initiates a response to you know stop eating. So in a in, you know, homeostatic model, you would say you have enough fat, something X is released from fat, it acts on the brain and suppresses appetite. Mm-hmm. And if then, okay. if your energy stores drop, that factor drops, you disinhibit appetite, you start eating. And that was a nice model and it was around for 40 years and nobody knew really what the molecular correlate for it was. And then a colleague at Rockefeller, uh, Jeff Friedman, identified exactly that factor, and uh, he basically uh, found a monogenetic... He defined the genetic defect of a monogenic mouse model, which was massively obese, weighing three times, so having... un stoppable eating desire let's put it like this and so he found basically that this mouse model was lacking a hormone which, which is released from adipose tissue the more mm-hmm. fat you store the more of that factor you release and he termed this leptin from yeah. it's coming from greek, uh, greek uh, leptos lean so he said that's a lean factor so it's basically released from if you have a lot of fat you release a lot of leptin and then subsequently, they identified the leptin receptor, which was exactly in the brain centers which control eating. And if you now take that factor, let's say inject it into the brain of a mouse, then the mouse will stop eating, because the receptor is in the brain and so. And so that really pushed the door open, for first your know, molecular correlate mm. system of body weight regulation, and then basically research unfolded around that. So then uh, a colleague at Cambridge, Steve O'Reilly, he identified the first human who had monogenic um, obesity and they were, I mean, not the first humans which had monogenic obesity, but he identified the first patient who was basically the equivalent of that mouse who was lacking leptin. And it was entirely recapitulating the phenotype. So just telling us that this was really an evolutionary conserved pathway of body weight mm-hmm. regulation. So if you take a kid which lacks leptin, put them in front of a buffet, they will literally not stop eating. And so, and they get massively obese, they develop all complications very early on at a young age. Uh, And that, of course, offers a charm for these kids (coughs) Mm. that you can replace leptin, the hormone which is lacking, and you completely normalize their body weight. The problem is that, you know, the garden variety of obese patients, they have high leptin levels indicative of leptin resistance. So the hormone is there, but it just doesn't execute its normal regulatory functions, meaning you eat despite having... A high signal coming from fat where there is enough fat, to mm. stop eating, but somehow the brain doesn't, you know, listen to that signal. And this is like basically it's a complete analogy to, to diabetes that I was discussing. You have, you know, high glucose levels, you have high insulin, but then at some point, muscle, liver, and fat do not respond, and we term that insulin resistance. And similarly, in obesity you know it seems to be the case that you develop leptin resistance so the signal is there it you know runs to the brain but the brain doesn't you know, initiate the appropriate response to reduce eating in proportion mm-hmm. to the energy store that you have.
0: It seems like leptin and insulin are very much related. So yeah. do we <clears throat> do we also see that when lep- le- leptin goes up, insulin goes yeah. up as well, so it, they're just very,
1: completely it, related. So they're not completely related, but you can, you can you, uh, there, there is, I mean, in, in a way conceptually you can view them as slightly different entities. So leptin is really released from the fat cell. in response to how much fat is stored so you can really look at it as a fat sensor and insulin is released in proportion to circulating blood glucose concentration so it's more like the glucose sensor so in principle they're both sensing energy and therefore under many circumstances they're regulated in parallel but they sense different let's say qualities of energy and, and this is basically how we came into this. So we, we really then hypothesized, well, could insulin also act as a communicating signal to the brain? And then we generated mice which lack the insulin receptors, so the signaling molecule in the brain, and they also get mildly obese. So it's really not that insulin is such a strong regulator of body weight as is leptin. But what was really interesting, and that is what my lab has been working on for the last 20 years, is like, I mean, what I've been describing is kind of a textbook knowledge. So, insulin acts on the liver to suppress glucose production, and on muscle and fat to remove glucose. Yeah. So, you would predict in that picture, insulin signaling in the brain has no role, right? Yeah. A, and so, when we then looked at mice which had no insulin receptor in the brain, despite the fact that they had the signaling machinery in the liver, in the muscle, and in the fat cell, they still were not able to maintain normal glucose concentration, so indicating that there was an okay. additional signal coming from the brain, which also contributes to glucose regulation. And this is basically what my lab has been working on for the last 20 years, trying to understand where exactly in the brain which neurons are involved, which other cells do they talk to, what's kind of the neuronal network which controls mm-hmm. peripheral glucose metabolism. And so the, the way we are really viewing the system is that we, you know, many other colleagues and us have identified specific cell types in in the brain which respond to leptin and to insulin and so they have all the machinery to send so many different aspects of energy. So they can, you know, they integrate the signal of leptin, they integrate um, insulin, they also respond to another hormone, which is called ghrelin. This is released yeah. from the stomach when you're hungry. So it's more the driver of eating. And they all, all those signals converge on the same neurons. And the concept that we're most interested in is basically, so you have those highly specialized neurons, which gets constantly instructed how much energy is in your body you know, from all the different qualities mm-hmm. of sensing. And then on one hand they will control how much you eat but on the other hand they also regulate how energy sources within your body are partitioned and distributed and so that's conceptually what we're interested so it's really like adapting whole body physiology and so it's not only am i going to eat am i not going to eat will glucose be taken up here or there It, it it's really what fascinates me personally the most is that i think we're looking at a system a regulatory system which kind of integrates all different aspects of physiology yeah in I'm, accordance to the energy state of the i mean body. it seems so of, complex it is totally complex. like Fun. it's just it's
0: so complex mm. so this is why i also wanted to ask you so there's this whole like calorie in calorie out like mm. the calories that i take in mm. that that's how much that's yeah. what's going to determine weight loss and weight gain but At is the that is yes is that true but that would only apply to people that are metabolically healthy yes because if you're metabolically unhealthy and yes. your signals are all out of balance, I mean, then that doesn't count anymore. Of course.
1: And, and of course, as I say, there, there are two different uh, components of that. I mean, one is calories in, calories out. But of course there is a, still a different rate at which you know, different people metabolize the same amount of calories. Yeah. And that truly exists. But at the end of the day, uh, it you know, it is really the, the, the sheer, simple balance between your personal actual energy expenditure on a given day at a given age which also declines over age importantly
0: yeah.
1: and the calories that you consume and i mean you can always make the very easy you know basically you can you can calculate the individual's energy expenditure and if you eat beyond that your weight goes into yeah. one direction if you drop it. And this is what I think is so fascinating about the system, how accurate it actually has to balance this, because you can make very simple calculations. If, if that system is only off by a percent each day, that, that will give you an extra 20 kilos over a period of a few years. Right? No. I mean, so it's, it's really that the, your, your system has to be so accurate in exactly determining you know, how much do I burn yeah. right now and really balance how much will I take up, and that's of course a problem. <laughs> I mean,
0: yeah. if that
1: system doesn't work yeah, very effectively.
0: Yeah. So going back to also leptin and insulin, mm. because when we define diabetes, it's usually insulin resistance. But, but it seems like leptin plays a huge role in it as
1: well. Absolutely yes. I mean it's uh, I mean the, the the again it it always comes from I mean what what is a driver in an individual patient right So if you if what drives you towards your insulin resistance is really this massive weight gain. Then probably the defect is more, or the 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 starting defect is more on the body weight regulation side. Mm-hmm. But then, as said, there are others who are more insulin resistant and don't have to gain so much weight, if at all, to get diabetes. So it's for each and every patient, you know, it it may be different that it's more on the body weight regulation side or more on the insulin action. Signaling side, yeah. where where the individual problem lies, but but it's I mean overall, if you look at overall population, clearly the problem for us as a population is increasing numbers of obesity, and then diabetes basically runs in parallel with that. So we have now approximately thirty percent of you know mm. really obese patients in the population, and. You, you can look at the map where you, you know, if you have epidemiological data, if you, you know, plotted the increase in obesity and in diabetes over the last 30 years, it runs totally yeah. in parallel.
0: So is there also a link between, um, it, so obesity, would it be more genetic or is that also more lifestyle factors? Because we've talked about diabetes, yeah. but obesity is still a different thing. I mean, thing. clearly
1: it's a, the it's a, it's a same thing as diabetes mm-hmm. at the end, uh, is clear genetic, you know determination of that of body weight regulation, and we also you know start understanding polygenic defects that contribute to obesity. But if you look at the dynamics of that you know, epidemic, as you termed it, right, it's, I mean, our genes didn't change over the last 30 years. So it's really that you know we, I think if you look for it from an evolutionary perspective, um, I think our, our organism has been optimized, evolutionary speaking you know to make sure that what i mean basically our, our organism has been optimized under conditions of limited fuel sources yeah. right so if you want to evolutionary develop your that organism according to the, that environment you know the system is more tailored to making sure when energy shows up in front of your body that you readily absorb mm-hmm. it store it away as fat and in our daily life today, you know, basically over a short period of time it has put that optimized organism in a completely different environment where suddenly food becomes available, you know, 24-7. And I think this is what we're witnessing. It's really not uh, that our genes have changed, mm-hmm. but that, we, that our lifestyle has changed so dramatically and that, you know, our body isn't really prepared for that.
0: Yeah, so the majority of obesity is still due to lifestyle changes. Yeah, and is But not
1: as an individual, right? It's not to blame an obese patient. Yeah, yeah. I think that is really, really important to state is that it's not about. Just the it, environment it, that there is. It's in. really the environment we are living in, so it's, it's more, you know, it's, it's not an individual's fault, say, yeah, to yeah. become. And I think that's really important because it otherwise really leads to stigmatization of, yeah. of patients. And it, it's really, we, we start understanding there's a real molecular basis, why the system, you know, doesn't sensitively operate under the conditions we're living in. So it's not just, you know, lack of willpower or something. I mean, we really start understanding the molecular correlate of why the system doesn't operate under the, you know, the conditions we're living in. Yeah. And I think that's really, really important to highlight again and again.
0: Uh, yeah, a, yeah, yeah. And so um, what about diabetes in children or ob- I guess obesity and diabetes, I think we can talk about them kind of as linked, but what about obesity or diabetes in children versus adults? Um, What's the difference between them also on a biological level?
1: Increasingly less. So, the the problem is, uh, uh, what we've been talking about is what's called type 2 diabetes, which is called the typical, let's say, age-related diabetes, which is by… characterized by insulin resistance
0: yeah i guess maybe we should define that yeah, really quickly uh, just define one thing so quick. type 2 so, diabetes you, is what we're talking about which is what you can develop later exactly. in life and type 1 diabetes is usually what you're born with well not really born yeah. with
1: but you develop it very early okay. on so let's say in a traditional view if you look back textbook 30 years ago before all of what's happening right now you have type 2 diabetes of the elderly which is 90 percent of the cases and you know develops closely associated with obesity, insulin resistance, everything we've talked about. But then there's 10% of patients which are affected by type 1 diabetes, and it's a completely different pathophysiology. So you get an autoimmune attack against the the cells, the beta cells in the pancreas Mm. which produce insulin. They get destroyed and your body does not produce any insulin. So usually these patients are lean, they're young, it's an autoimmune disease, and basically your your body kills its own insulin production and then the only way to treat it is of course to exogenously provide the insulin to replace it completely different yeah. physiology. Yeah. but what we are seeing now uh, due to the obesity epidemic we're seeing more and more obese kids yeah and now we start seeing something in pediatrics which you have not never but rarely seen 30 years ago is very obese children which now, very early on, develop insulin resistance and so basically the classical type 2 diabetes. It's very frequent but, you know, it increases and that is, of course, in a way, dangerous because diabetes, in the long run, um, you know, leads to complications. So And they affect the eye, so you can get mm. eye complications. Mm. You can get nerve complications, so that and it's typically that the, the finest vessels in your body get damaged by the high glucose. And so this affects the, the micro vessels which serve the nerves. So then patients start losing, you know, sensitivity, touch sensitivity. Mm-hmm. They develop pain due to the nerve degeneration, so that's called diabetic neph- um, neuropathy. Then it damages the, the fine vessels in the kidney, which is called diabetic nephropathy. And so diabetes is, together with hypertension, the most frequent cause of that people have ultimately kidney failure and have to go on to dialysis. Mm-hmm. And because of the uh, damaging the smallest vessels in the eye in the retina, you know patients develop diabetic retinopathy. And that's the leading cause for blindness in, in Western populations. So it's really the long run of that glucose dysregulation, which then leads to all of those complications. And you can imagine you know, if, those, if you have you know, 20 more years' time with diabetes, as you develop it, let's say, in early adulthood, something that you otherwise only would have developed 50 plus, mm. that gives you another 30 extra years to develop the complications, you start seeing the complications earlier, and this is a real dilemma about it.
0: Yeah. So we keep on talking about diabetes, but mm. what about pre-diabetes? What kind of defines the difference between when you're pre-diabetic mm. and when you're actually diabetic?
1: So, the, uh, so the, the, the formal you know, definition of diabetes is that your blood glucose exceeds a certain limit which it usually shouldn't exceed. And so then it you know it's blunt diabetes, glucose is high. But there is a pre-diabetes where you basically if you look sensitively enough, you can find that the person is insulin resistant and that on occasion the glucose excursions will be higher upon a challenge. Yeah. But then they still return to some normal level. So if you take a day-to-day blood test, it's still within the formal range. But if you look careful enough, you can see that... And there is a test which is called an oral glucose tolerance test. So you bring yeah. in a patient, didn't eat overnight, and you give a defined dose of glucose, 75 grams. And then you basically look two hours later what happens to the blood glucose concentration. And so if it's in your normal insulin sensitive subject, it should be below 140 milligram per deciliter. That is normal insulin sensitivity. So the glucose comes in, it gets clear. If you're diabetic, either you start out already with a high level, then you have a diagnosis of diabetes, or your body does not manage to bring it after the two hours below 200. And that is an alternative way to really put the formal diagnosis mm. out of uh, diabetes, and if you're in the range in between, let's say between the 140 and 200, two hours after that glucose load, and this is what we call impaired glucose tolerance, and it's you know very likely that in, in long run you will develop diabetes, and that's kind of pre-diabetes. So it, it really tells you that if, yeah. you, you, know, if you challenge the system, it, it doesn't have the full flexibility to respond, and it's usually indicative that later in life it may yeah. go down to them.
0: What about con- uh, continuous glucose monitors? Like, could those be used more to see or detect if someone is pre-diabetic in the hope to then maybe prevent diabetes? I think it's
1: a pretty uh, pretty high effort to do that, right? I mean, so basically what you're referring to is that there is no continuous blood, uh, glucose monitoring, but you basically yeah, implant catches. a sensor mm. and you can you know just continuously uh, sense it. I think that that is very good. It has been really good to improve uh, treatment because you just get much finer, you know, timescale resolution of glucose concentrations than always having to, you know, basically take a little drop of blood from the yeah. finger, which eventually is, is pretty cumbersome. Um, but it's, it's not a good screening Test, you know, it's a pretty high effort. So, basically, what I said the, the easiest test is that glucose tolerance test. Yeah, and it also predicts, I mean, if you have a perfectly fine glucose tolerance today, you know, it, it would be enough to, to look later. And I, and I think it's just a one day measure, pretty straightforward, and that is much easier. Um, but there are clearly circumstances where the you know, continuous glucose monitoring is clear advantages. For example, we know. It's a different aspect, but maybe just yeah, you know, talk about everything. Yeah. Um, but what is also, you know, for really important um, is gestational diabetes. I'm not sure. I don't know is. what that is. Okay, so, so I it's think basically diabetes it. occurring during pregnancy.
0: Okay, and what's it called again?
1: Uh, gestational. Gestational
0: diabetes. diabetes. Okay.
1: So it uh, develops during during pregnancy, and that is really important to be diagnosed. Because if, your, if the mother's glucose has high excursions, as it does in diabetes, mm. because it cannot control it, um, the, the glucose can be passed on to the, to the fetus, and that, at later developmental stages, has its own pancreas, which then senses the high glucose mm. being reached over from the mother and starts releasing high levels of insulin. And then those kids basically are, you know, growing and developing under unphysiologically high insulin concentrations. And this leads to, eventually insulin is, is a growth factor. So there's a closely related growth factor, which is called insulin-like growth factor one, IGF-1. Yeah. And they act on closely mm-hmm. related receptors. And then if you have very high insulin concentrations, that can also act on IGF-1 receptors and you get fetal overgrowth. It's called okay. macrosomia. so you have big kids being born. Yeah. And it's also an interesting, I mean interesting it's a, it's what we know from epidemiology, that offspring that is born to mothers who are suffering from diabetes on, during pregnancy, gestational diabetes, they are born with a lifelong predisposition to develop metabolic disorders and hypertension later in life. So it's really important to control blood glucose concentrations and to diagnose diabetes in pregnancy in order to prevent the next generation mm. even being affected. And so that's also something that we're scientifically interested in, is really asking the question, you know, how does this high insulin eventually also act on neural circuits which control body weight in long-term in the offspring. And so we've done a mouse study where we basically can show that certain neurons which are in place to suppress feeding in response to leptin, mm-hmm. they, the high insulin in the fetus suppresses their projection formation. And that is developmentally timed in mice, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, mouse yeah. data. But, but basically yeah. if we mimic this in the, in the mouse model, that then basically the, the pup is born, with which is a br- with a brain which is softwired for body weight regulation, and that itself is enough to set it off with a higher, you know, predisposition to develop obesity later on. And so this is yeah. exactly all we're working on. But coming back to the continuous <laughs> glucose monitoring, that is of course very effective, and it's probably the best tool to really monitor um, mothers with. Gestational diabetes once it's diagnosed to really optimally treat them to reduce the, the negative impact on the developing fetus and Could you
0: reverse the diabetes
1: you can give to, uh, insulin basically <laughs> so this is to okay. the mother Yeah, then you reduce the glucose concentrations yeah. the, the insulin doesn't is not yeah. being passed on through the placenta and then if you manage to reduce the glucose concentrations yeah. in the mother then the fetus will but I be guess developing fine.
0: There we're just talking about insulin resistance, but what about leptin? Is is that not something to worry about?
1: Well, it's not, I mean, first of all, leptin very likely, I mean, it doesn't cross the, the placenta either. Okay. okay. So if you manage to basically control the metabolites such as glucose, which would be passed on, yeah. then I think you can kind of shield the, the fetus from the adverse. Okay. Things going on in the mother, and and so, and it's really well defined for, uh, for you know gestational diabetes, and yeah. so if you control that, okay. in very tight range, and therefore it's really important that all pregnancies are really screened, for, and this is why it's part of the real routine screening program, to look at certain points of pregnancy, to do exactly that glucose tolerance test to, you de- really sensitively detect women who have gestational diabetes early yeah. on to treat it optimally to reduce the adverse effects on the kids.
0: But this gestational diabetes, does that mainly come to women that are pre-diabetic or can that come to anyone?
1: It's perfect. I mean, it's a, that's exactly the right question, but probably happens in many instances. As we know that um, if a woman develops gestational diabetes, which can revert after pregnancy that she has a very high likelihood to develop it later on. So it's basically just that, you know, the the environment of the pregnancy Mm. is probably unmasking a predisposition that the individuals carry on. she would develop diabetes, let's say, 20 years later anyways, but now under the conditions of the pregnancy, that is, you know, the system is pushed and it manifests earlier, and it may even revert after the pregnancy. But then you really have to closely follow these women because you know that but very high likelihood they will develop, you know, diabetes later again, even if it reversed after pregnancy. So it's basically the pregnancy is unmasking a predisposition, which has yeah. been around anyway.
0: Yeah. So with I guess with those kind of women, it doesn't really make sense to wear a continuous glucose monitor beforehand because no, it's no, I mean you don't know who they the are, right? I mean, but
1: you you have to yeah. screen the pregnancy to identify the ones which are tipped over the balance.
0: But what about in other patients? I I still feel like. Or to me, it seems like continuous glucose monitors could be a really good tool to try to detect early levels of pre diabetes.
1: Well, but I mean, what would you want to do? I mean, <clears throat> the question is, do you really want to you know put a continuous blood glucose monitor on anybody? Because this is yeah. what it comes down to, right? I mean, the proportions of diabetes will be ten percent. I mean, mm. they are ten percent right now, and they, if you know, everything continues on the same dynamics, they will be even higher. And so then the question will be, when do you put it on? For how long do you put it on? So I think it's, as a screening, it's not really... Uh, I, I think the, the, the well-standardized tests operate pretty well. Okay. In order, but it would be already a great help you know, to implement those, which are really straightforward as a, let's say, simple screening strategy. Because that one of the problems is, if, you know, if I may go into the direction, is, I mean, a high glucose doesn't hurt. So you, and the, you know, and usually there is a lag time between it. With type one diabetes, it's, it's really clear. I mean, the beta yeah. cells are destroyed, yeah, yeah. then you suddenly get a glucose of 500 and the kid almost ends, Yeah, you know, worse comes to worse in coma, in an emergency room, and then diagnosis is done. So there is no real lag time between the real happening and the mm-hmm. diagnosis. But with type two diabetes, you know, you can develop elevated glucose concentrations for a period of time and don't really recognise it. it, doesn't hurt and it you know doesn't you know it may be so usually the science of the first manifestations is that if the glucose goes beyond a certain threshold, so usually glucose is filtered out into the urine and it's reabsorbed. But the reabsorption capacity is limited. So beyond a certain threshold, you then start losing glucose in the urine. Yeah. And that acts as an osmotic force. And you, you will know, develop something that's called polyurea. You will basically mm. get up at night. And it's because basically the, the glucose in the urine starts draining more water into the, into the urine. But, but this, of course, takes time and it's a gradual process. So you can be running around before you hit that kidney border and really without recognizing what is happening for a year, two years, three years. But then during that period of time, the elevated glucose can already operate, you know, on the vessels in your eyes, on the vessels in your kidney, in your nerves. And what it really means is that you have that lag period of, let's say, two or three years on average until it's really diagnosed, and then at the first point of diagnosis, already more than 20% of the newly diagnosed diabetic patients have already the complications developed. So, mm. and so it's really more important, You're know, coming back to your glucose munching, than yeah. you're just rolling out a broad program, everybody running around for the yeah. continuous, it would be just much more feasible. Um, to really give everybody at, at some point a test and you really pick them out as yeah. early as possible.
0: Could it maybe be beneficial just to see what kind of foods a pre-diabetic person should be eating and which ones they should be avoiding? I'm go. I'm asking yeah. this based on the perspective that pre-diabetes is reversible.
1: So to maybe that's extent, yes. that's also yeah, 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 yeah. a question sure. that maybe I mean, so we should the, answer. So what What's really good? I mean, what what we know is. Um let's, let's assume that in, even in pre-diabetes your insulin mediated glucose transport doesn't work as well. Right? So then the question could be also, is there an alternative way to deposit glucose independent of insulin? And there is actually a way, and a way for muscle cells to take up glucose in an insulin independent way is exercise. So during okay. exercise, your muscle basically takes up, even if it's insulin resistant, it can still take up glucose. So really exercising is a way to normalize, to reduce blood glucose concentrations independent of insulin. And this is why exercise really is an important component in addition to you know losing weight. Yeah. And then of course there are certain recommendations, I mean, that you shouldn't go for you know, carbohydrates which are you know, rapidly absorbed, give you peak glucose concentrations, but that you rather go mm. for more complex carbohydrates which gets slowly absorbed and that you don't get profiles where the glucose shoots up very high. So it's really the combination of both what you eat, the less, I mean it's reducing body weight on one hand to increase the insulin sensitivity, the quality of what you eat to really avoid the the peaking glucose concentrations, and then of course maybe capitalizing on exercise, you know, to help support the system independent of the impact insulin.
0: I definitely want to talk about exercise as well because I think that's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so maybe you want to tell us more about exercise and also like the role that exercise can play in maybe reversing pre-diabetes or yeah, it, diabetes. It's, it's
1: probably, it's, a, it's it's really one of the, I, to me, it, it is one of the best measures. And so there are really great studies um, showing, I mean, it's, you know, colleagues in Denmark, uh, very focused on this there. Um, and they have. Put you know patients, even pa- let's say diabetic patient who runs on two or three medications in a real, let's say, strenuous exercise program, you're going in five days a week, a uh, supervised combination of cardio and strength training, and they can show that, I mean, a large proportion can even drop their diabetic medications. And I think that's really impressive, right? Wow. I mean, so the number of medications drops. There is, in uh, I think, up to twenty percent as a complete reversal, even of, you know, manifest diabetes, and I think that just highlights the potential yeah. and the power of that, right? So it's it's really looking at exercise as a kind of, yeah, basic medicine, right? Yeah.
0: Definitely. Is there any particular exercise that works better? So strength well, versus cardio. Both. So oh, basically,
1: what they really what they really recommend is is a balanced program between both, and um, yeah i mean that's the way but but i want to and of course what, what's also interesting is um research-wise you can also imagine i mean i'm not advocating it in a sense but if you would understand what is the molecular mechanism of exercise i was
0: just thinking i mean that so basically well.
1: what you could if you really do science and people yeah. do it right i mean basically if they understand because eventually also the you know the physical exercise has molecularly to be linked to glucose uptake yeah. and if you define, could define those mechanisms, I know, it would be a fantasy to basically develop the exercise mimetic pill yeah. which, you know, triggers the exact same mechanisms and you sitting on the couch and your body you know, is yeah. performing exercise. I mean, it's so exactly I mean, what
0: I was thinking. Like, if we can understand what right. it, the role it, it, that it. exercise plays, exactly. you can develop something in the lab. The only question that I ask is, exercise is free, basically, for yeah. everyone. It's the easiest thing to do. Right. Or, uh, I well, mean, it depends. It depends on your personality yeah. as well and stuff. And I know some people would prefer just a pill.
1: Yeah.
0: But, you no, know... No, I, I, I,
1: I told totally advertising. You don't get me wrong. But, but yeah. I think, you know, I mean, I know. To me, I, I also have the same problem. It's a, i say I usually run in the morning without a dog.
0: Yeah.
1: And it's easy in the summer. But, you know, it's sometimes oh, you have now. this or you, 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 you catch a cold then you, you drop out of it for three yeah. weeks. And then it's so difficult. I mean, some, you know, then it's dark, raining. Yeah. In, in order to, to really make that hurdle. Maybe mm-hmm. I'm just not the right perfect exercise yeah. addict, but yeah. you know, it's 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 really an effort to to really yeah. do it continuously over a long time. Yeah, no, it yeah.
0: definitely is an effort and then with busy schedules and mm. stuff. In the end, if you have an an alternative to just exercise, mm. that's still the best thing. Yeah. Because if that can help reverse diabetes then
1: yeah. No, I totally agree. But but I, I totally advertise. I mean, so it's really like exercise and and this is also, I mean, that's really the most effective that we can offer our patients right now. If So we are also run an obesity clinic, right? And right now there is limited, you know, pharmaceutical potential to really treat obesity, to reduce mm. body weight. And so the, the best thing that we can offer at this point is really uh, very intense programs where we do dietary counseling, together with an exercise program you know psychological support you know people meeting in a group and really have a very structured program running over a year Mm -hmm. and that really works i mean people lose let's say on average what 20 kilograms in such a program and even if then they go back to the to the wild they are able to maintain that reduced body weight but but if you really try to do all of that on your own without the right counseling and i mean so many people want to lose weight but it's just so hard to do it right and so therefore it really needs the the whole framework to support that initial drive mm-hmm.
0: i think also one of the main problems is that there's just for example with healthy eating there's just so many different opinions out right. there so so who do you listen to if you don't have medical advice
1: but right. i mean basically you should seek professional advice yeah. and this is why we're offering exactly those programs and but what is also i mean at, at the end you, you find i mean you can read about it in lay press you know no carbohydrates only fat yeah. diet this diet that diet right at the end of the day there's no convincing uh, data to suggest that any specific diet type is superior to another one as long as you manage to reduce calorie intake, right? I mean so yeah and you shouldn't go to extreme diets. So I think in in my view, it is really the recommendation to go for a calorie reduced, balanced diet. I mean, this is what it comes down to. Eat healthy food, less of it. Yeah. And that's the safest way. And there's no magic to only eating this or only eating that that will give you weight loss despite eating. And so it's really
0: Yeah. What about intermittent fasting? Because that's a really hot that's topic really a hot these topic. days.
1: And and this is also really, really interesting from a scientific point of view because it's, it also, again, offers room to, uh, you know, for scientific discovery, understanding molecular mechanisms of, of intermittent fasting. And so it's, it's really, I mean, I think the, the, the glucose metabolism improving actions are well documented at least in animal models I think the human data aren't even that cl- despite many people talking about it mm. I think it's it's really the strongest is pre data at this point and it really remains to be seen what is really the mechanism but clearly it's, it's but also one has to say that even in intermittent fasting it, it comes usually if you do it in a clinical setting it just reduces overall yeah. you know food intake yeah. It's it's usually not that people if they don't eat for sixteen hours, that they really fully catch up during those eight hours that they are eating, and so it, it it is clearly it's a component that you probably drive, um, energy expenditure that you know if you if you don't eat for a certain period that you increase burning calories that is clearly a component, but at the end of the day many people doing intermittent fasting at the end eat clearly much less than what they would have eaten yeah. on a continuous basis.
0: So the fasting period that you get with intermittent fasting you don't think has such a
1: well, big impact I mean, I mean, I really or it's unknown? Know. I, I think it's it's not fully resolved in, in okay. humans, put it like that. In in rodent models, it seems to have an effect, a clear effect. Um, but again, I mean, the, the mechanisms for it are not really fully yeah. understood, yeah.
0: And so in order also to pre- maybe prevent diabetes or if you're diabetic, is there certain foods that you should eat at certain times of the day?
1: Well, in, in general, it's independent of, uh, of diabetes or not, but it's known, again, from preclinical studies, is that what we're learning more and more is that in many metabolic pathways, there's a natural circadian rhythmicity. Yeah.
0: Good, I was gonna ask if you should eat with your circadian And you, so. you
1: should definitely do that. Okay. And because uh, there's, I think it's an interesting mouse experiment, and there's also clinical human data to support that. If you, let's say, have a normal mouse, which is lean, and so they're active during the night, they're eating during the night, they're sleeping during the day. I mean, they're in reverse. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah, And so, um, and they eat 90% of what they eat during the night. If you have a healthy mouse, if you measure what they're eating, and if you basically if feed them the same exact same amount of food same number of calories that they would have eaten during their natural night cycle basically only offered to them during the day cycle they will get obese Mm. just meaning that it's really important the timing of your meal and then of course you can extrapolate that to our living that you know we would be normally operating in, you know, days, uh, light cycle, and that also our clocks in our organs, including liver, muscle, everything, are adjusted to to that time scale and optimized in terms of metabolic capacity during that time, Uh, then it turns against you, you know, eating the calories at you know, midnight when you walk out of a bar or something like that, right? Yeah. So then that would just be the total analogy of this. So I think it's it's really indicating that you should eat you know during a natural day cycle, and not in the middle of the night, which of course you know also may explain why potentially obesity you know, may be occurring, let's say, in shift workers more mm. readily than in people. Yeah, so
0: what actually happens inside the body on a metabolic level if you eat outside of the most active mm. time of the day?
1: Well, so let's say in, in the most general terms that the, that the enzymes which are made in the liver to metabolize, just the example glucose, fat, whatever, they, they, they are oscillating on a daily basis. And so mm-hmm. the, that your liver is prepared to deal best with the calories when the enzymes are there. To metabolize it, and if you you know dump the food on them on the organ or in any enzyme that is required to take care of it, mm-hmm. you know is at its lowest state, then you can easily imagine that then the whole thing gets out of balance and doesn't work as efficiently as it should be when when food intake matches yeah. the optimal responsiveness of the organ.
0: Yeah, so I guess it's really important to just eat in the most active time yeah. of the day. Yeah. Um, and are there also certain food, like food groups that maybe you should be eating in the morning or avoiding no, the evening? For, I
1: mean, I, th- I think so, it's really the, it's, it's more the balanced diet, you know, at any time during the day. I mean, during the natural eating time.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, what about sleep? How does sleep also play a really important role? Yes. Like, <laughs> at, so I, I mean, obviously sleep is very important. It's, I think everyone mm-hmm. could say sleep will play an important role in everything, right. but do you also have actual data to show that sleep is important?
1: Well, you have the inverse data, and we also okay. just have a research program on that, so the, uh, what, what we know is that in obesity, uh, the sleeping patterns get disturbed in, in the most general term, and so what you seem to get is more fragmented sleep, which then, of course in turn contributes also to an offset of your activities from that natural so mm-hmm. just giving one example right and then of course you don't feel as well and but it seems that if you have sleep deprivation that there might be bidirectional interaction that then also your energy homeostasis regulatory system doesn't operate as sensitively as it usually does so it really it goes in both ways so if you don't sleep appropriately it may predispose you for obesity and in turn once you get obese it further fragments your sleep pattern
0: yeah um okay so we've defined sleep exercise uh lifestyle factors that's all great Mm. so what kind of medical treatments are there Uh, so i think you've already mentioned that there's not really that many medical treatments to treat diabetes
1: well for diabetes there are a couple okay uh, for obesity, is really yeah. limited. And so, I mean, of course, it was a hype when, you know, when leptin was identified, everybody's like, okay, obesity is done. we just give leptin. Yeah. But then, you know, people start realizing there's leptin resistance. There is basically one uh, drug right now on the market, which I think is very promising, which was developed from a diabetes perspective. It was made as a diabetes um, uh, medication. And it is acting like a hormone which is naturally produced in our gut, and that's called glucagon-like peptide, GLP-1. And GLP-1 was first identified that if you eat glucose, that this is released from the gut, and it acts on the pancreas to enhance the sensitivity of the beta cells to the glucose to release insulin. And then it was developed. The problem is that natural GLP 1 has a super short half life. So if mm-hmm. you now take that hormone, you cannot, well, I shouldn't say that, but it's a peptide hormone, which is usually degraded in the stomach. So you can take it as a pill primarily. But then, uh, so, um, but if you inject it, it's so rapidly degraded. That this didn't lead any further. So, then what was developed is kind of artificial analogs of the GLP1 receptor. And these are called GLP1 analogs. They act like mm. the natural hormone. And they were first developed for diabetes. But then it was recognized that the GLP1 receptor is also present in the brain and exactly in those neurons which respond to insulin, leptin, and that in addition to controlling glucose. They also reduced appetite, and this eventually led and uh, so this put them on the market. So they were first marketed as a diabetes drug. It's very effective, um, but through the appetite suppressing effect, it now also has an indication for yeah. uh, people. And, and this is pretty much it at this point of time. What we have to offer for you know di- uh, for obese patients. Yeah. In on the pharmacological side, but there are new developments. I mean, of course, we're really trying to understand, can we develop something like leptin sensitizers? You know, something that reinstates normal leptin sensitivity, so there's, you know, preclinical developments in that direction, and there's a whole more in that area, but nothing really has entered clinical practice beyond, you know, the, the GLP-1 analogs that I've been yeah.
0: Actually, you mentioned leptin and now I do have another question. So I'm going to go back and then I'm going to go back to the treatments. But so uh, what actually determines how in healthy human beings right now, what determines how much leptin and ghrelin we have? Because different people can like eat different amounts of food. So clearly they have... No,
1: it's your body fat content. Oh, it's just... It's it's really, it's a fat sensor. So really the leptin levels in circulation run perfectly in In correlation correlation. with your fat content. Okay. And, uh, and the ghrelin really increases in starvation, so it's a signal that is released. So if yeah. you don't eat for a period of time, then ghrelin levels go up. But this is not a lot of individual variation, so it's really more this yeah. know, more flexible regulation. And it's really not that... So people also thought, well, let's let's develop um, ghrelin antagonist block.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and those didn't work to suppress food intake. And okay. the, the problem is also that I think that the system is so redundant in the brain, as I said, we're evolutionary optimized to maintain feeding. So if you you know go in on one side to suppress feeding, very likely yeah. there is a compensatory pathway being activated, and that of course makes it super super difficult. And therefore, already the GLP one is an interesting drug, because we know now that it acts on so many brain sites, and it it's almost serendipitous how nice it mm-hmm. works and. Really understanding the full basis why it works to suppress feeding isn't even clear.
0: Yeah, so there's not so many treatments available. Do you think that in the next few years that's going to change, or a lot more research? Well, it's needs a lot more research done? going on,
1: and it is also, um, it is, I mean, they're, they're clearly promising candidates. So, what, what people have started doing. Is, so, grp one is, you know, is, is one example, and it works. And it can give you, let's say, a 15% weight reduction, 10%, mm-hmm. something like that. So, if you have 130 kilograms, on average, yeah. uh, better responders, some don't respond, let's say you lose 13 kilograms. I mean, that doesn't solve fully your problem, yeah. right? And so, what people have been trying is to take other gut peptides and fuse them into one molecule that you're not only targeting the GLP-1 receptor, but also you know tickling receptors for other gut peptides. Mm-hmm. And there is clearly very promising data from preclinical studies and first clinical studies that they may be superior to the effect of GLP-1 alone. And so those are basically on the verge of entering clinical practice. And they may be in, a, you know, in the preclinical model, they give you 20, 25% weight loss, but not, in, I mean, that yeah. hasn't been fully validated in, in humans. But there is clearly developments which look promising and then also alternative approaches. The better we understand the system, I think, the more, the more we can So defend.
0: what if you combine exercise, sleep, healthy eating with maybe one of these drugs that hasn't shown amazing results on its own? Mm-hmm. I'm assuming it's always been tested on its own.
1: No, it's, it always comes, I mean, usually it comes, I mean there's nothing that you can just you know normalize sleep let's put it like, yeah right? but yeah. i think usually it should always be and this is why we're offering saying this is what i'm saying so this is what we're offering is these you know really controlled interventions lifestyle interventions i mean they are active by themselves and then if you add that with, uh, uh, with something like a GLP-1 analog, yeah. of course, it gives you additional effects and then you can really get into a pretty substantial weight loss. And then the next problem is to maintain that, right? And then of yeah. course, you have to have your lifestyle adjusted. The problem is one um, that our system tries to fight, fight back weight loss. You know, the, yeah. the, the, so what usually happens uh, this is pretty well documented that if you diet Let's say your your energy expenditure was whatever. Make up a number two thousand calories a day. You want to lose weight. You diet. You eat five hundred calories, nine hundred calories. Your net balance goes down. You lose weight. The problem is, your body, your somehow senses you're in energy deficit, and what it does is fights it by reducing energy expenditure. Which is fine, let's say now it goes down from 2000 to 1700, you're still eating 900, so you still lose weight. The problem is your body will remember Mm. that perception of energy deficit. When you go back to your 2000 calories, which would have been equivalent to what you spent before you went into the diet, now your body will maintain for extended period of time, up to two years, the seventeen hundred energy expenditure. So if you only go back to your originally neutral food intake, it will give you the the you know additional weight gain again. And this is kinda of, you know, this problem of this yo-yo mm-hmm. effect that you diet and then you overshoot and and at the end it all goes into one direction. And this is why you really need those structured programs to maintain yeah eventually the combination of exercise reduce feeding and it's it's really it's it's a long-term enterprise but it works i mean so it's not that it it wouldn't work but you just have to be aware of it that your body really wants to fight body weight
0: yeah it really seems like actually for to treat obesity is you have to also maintain it for then you have to change your lifestyle completely. completely Yeah, and so also these, the drugs or the preventative tr- or the treatments actually against obesity, would they be thought to then that you have to keep on taking yes. them? I mean, the, the your whole, the, the whole
1: perspective as of now is it would be a chronic treatment as treating you know, hypertension where you have to take the drugs for And that, of course, is also a problem from a drug development perspective because they have to be very safe, right? I mean, yeah. so what you have to develop is something that somebody potentially has to take for whatever, 40 years. And that puts a very high burden on the drug development process. Mm-hmm. And that is also something which has really made big pharma companies, despite having all the potential to develop yeah. those drugs, walk out of that indication because you know, it's much easier, uh, how to say that, but le- let's assume you're, you're, you're treating cancer. You, you have a patient who has a very limited life expectancy, sadly, let's say a year. If you develop a new drug, which helps to survive the patient an extra year, half year, I mean, almost any side effect will be tolerated, right? If you compare yeah. it to a conventional chemotherapy, and that, of course, from a marketing perspective of a pharma company is a much easier target than developing a pill, which somebody has to safely take over 40 years to eventually improve you know, life mm. quality and uh, extend life. And, and that puts a, the burden really high on that drug development. And it makes it also very likely to fail are in very long term as side effects so for example there was a, a drug out which was a cannabinoid receptor modifying drug which worked beautifully for weight reduction very nice like it was mm-hmm. only like what 15 years ago and you know huge development costs it was it enrolled into the market and you can imagine until a drug really makes it into the market it, you know the company has spent yeah whatever, hundreds of millions into that and then, it started, because it was modulating in the brain, eating behavior, then, you know, you know, patients treated with it, a few in number, but still, you know, committed suicide in relation to that, because it was interfering with brain circuits, which eventually mm-hmm. uh, involved mood, and it was taken off the market. And that, of course, was a clear message, also highlighting the risk of going into that direction Because I mean, from a company perspective, it's it's a huge loss, and that you're balancing out where you put your strategic developments. Rather on the from an economical perspective, it's much safer to go in certain indications, than going into a direction which really requires you know high level of safety for a very long time, and that is yeah. What
0: What about a medication in in children? Is that are we talking about the same ones? Like you could administer them in. But it's even less. Adults. I mean that they children. even don't
1: have the admission. I mean the the. Um, I mean that there are basically no clinical trials on yeah. medications in in children unless there are certain again rare mutations that now now. Um, because the mutations already manifest in the children and there there is new drugs coming up if if you have certain mutations in a receptor which is involved in you know, downstream neurons of the leptin pathway that you can you know really treat those which are genetically predisposed with that but uh, other than that I mean it's the same conventional yeah. strategies that you would follow in adult yeah
0: yes it seems like there's still some challenging times ahead true um,
1: but it's a lot to be discovered, and what, what I yeah. really like about it is really the fundamental aspect, and this is ultimately what Max Planck stands for, is trying to understand the system, right? I think it's a yeah. really fascinating system, and I think treating your know, patients is one thing, but I mean, I think that you, first of all, you have to understand how the system works, and it's so complex. And this is, I think, that is really the science that fascinates us, is trying to, you know, first understand what is the neurocircuitry, where are the neurons which sense the energy, to which neurons do they talk, you know, how ultimately all the different inputs come together, which are balanced, to ultimately come to the decision, will I eat, will I not eat? And I think this is just fascinating neurobiology, and also how to integrate, how to send out the signals to your peripheral organs, you know, in complete, basically, uh, we view those centers, it's almost like, you know, conductor in an orchestra, right? I mean, you have Mm -hmm. somebody sitting there, getting all the input from outside, and then you're orchestrating, you know, something to, you know, take a bite or not, your liver to, you know, produce glucose or not. And I think that's just what really fascinates me about the yeah. science
0: behind it. Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated by how complex our system is. But I think that's also what makes developing the drugs yeah, so hard. Completely it's hard. just, I think we, we're still lacking so much information. Yeah, exactly. So, but, you know, that's up to you. So yeah. I will... Uh, I will come keep back them, in a few years. Come, come back in a few years, <laughs> yeah. then we can talk about it. So, the final thing that I wanted to talk about was COVID, um, mm-hmm. the COVID pandemic, because um, it seems like a lot of COVID deaths in kids are also due to kids that have a, a core morbidities. Mm-hmm. And it seems like there is a link between obesity and. Uh, an increased risk of developing COVID.
1: Well, it's uh, I mean, basically the the risk that is best documented, I think, is at this point, and it's not only true for kids; it's largely true for adults as well. Yeah, is is really that there's a clear risk factor to develop severe complications of COVID as a consequence of obesity and diabetes. So those yeah. are the two, and it j- just highlights also the importance in today's ep- epidemic to really you know fight that back the the ideas why that is is not really hundred percent clear oh, if sure. you want to get to that yeah <laughs> so I was just I was I, just I, interested I, in that. no it's, I think it's it's multifaceted we also for example we know that uh, one way to become insulin resistant in obesity is that you also get dysregulated inflammation so what we usually talk about is if if you expand your fat mass as an obese subject or animal model. Um, it's not only that the fat gets bigger, and the fat cells get bigger, that it's, so it's not only a, um, a quantitative change of adipose tissue, but you start seeing that cells which are usually only present in low number in adipose tissue start to increase, and those are cells of the immune system, like macrophages, mm. and lymphocytes, and they somehow get activated in this environment, and they release what usually they would release when you're fighting an infection. So then cytokines are released. And cytokines have also been shown to cause insulin resistance. So there is, current, mm-hmm. it's called of this, and it's called, the, the, the term is meta-inflammation. So that the obesity, it's, it's not like, you know, having a fever and a full-blown inflammatory state as, you know, fighting bacteria, but that you have a chronic low grade inflammation mm-hmm. and yeah. so maybe it's the offset of the inflammatory response which is driven by obesity which then you also compromise your ability to fully you know fight viruses and and that's one of the aspects how it's viewed right that you have a mm-hmm. chronic set off in your immune homeostasis due to the uh, metabolic environment
0: but what about the flu do we see the same um correlation between obesity and developing
1: i would guess yes honestly okay. i really don't know the numbers behind okay. it so it would be a guess yeah either. but it's clear the data are out there but i, I yeah. would predict that it's the exact same thing okay. that the complication will be more but don't quote me yeah yeah of course
0: three. of course of course yeah because that's what would really fascinate yeah. me if it's just something to do with no COVID? no it's not no no it's not or? only
1: COVID. i mean what's really clear mm. is that your risk let's say on let's say on an equivalent bacterial infection to go into sepsis, like the full-blown, yeah. um, it's much higher if you're diabetic. So it's, it's really, this is nothing limited to COVID. I okay. think it's just a massive spread, which has you know brought it to the attention of everybody. But there's clear predisposition for much more severe uh, cause of many infectious diseases, bacterial yeah. infections, in diabetes uh, just beyond COVID, definitely.
0: So it really seems like we need to treat or reverse diabetes and then automatically you will also reduce or exactly. exactly. Yeah. So this has been a really good conversation. I've learned a lot. I hope the audience has as well. I hope you enjoyed it as well.
1: Thanks so much for the conversation and the opportunity.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Okay, cool.
0: That's it. Thank you all so much for listening. If you would like to learn more about Professor Jens Brüning's work, please visit the Max Planck Institute for Metabolism Research website. And if you like our podcasts, make sure to follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and our Instagram page. This is the best way to stay up to date with what episodes we will be releasing in season three. And trust me, we have a lot of good episodes planned. Thank you again for listening. Bye offspring magazine the podcast is brought to you by the Max Planck phdnet science communication group known as the offspring magazine the intro outro music is composed by serena frankumar and the pre-intro jingle is composed by gustavo Carrizo if you have any feedback comments or suggestions please feel free to write us at offspring.podcast at phdnet.mpg.de until next week stay safe stay healthy bye